Welcome to the Nuclear Families Evangelist, a podcast that debunks the mythologies of biology by exploring the unique dynamics and relationships of blended families. It's time to unlock the hidden superpower of being blended. So here's your host, Tracy Doherty Shanklin. My first guest on the Nuclear Families Evangelist is Marnie Rosenthal Chaikin. Marnie grew up in Philadelphia, where she spent most of her time training to be a professional dancer. After two semesters at the Tisch School of Arts, as a dance major at New York University, Marnie shifted to attend the Gallatin School at NYU, where she focused on journalism and Latin American studies. After graduation, Marnie headed to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, she opened the first Pure Bar location in 2009. She expanded Pure Bar throughout LA, where I met her. Marnie sold off her ownership four years ago and joined the pharmaceutical industry. She is busy raising her two young daughters and is excited to marry her fiancé, Josh, and become a stepmom to two boys. Currently, Marnie is working on her master's in executive coaching in organizational consulting at NYU. She is also a community creator and a self-described hardcore mommy. I am delighted to welcome my friend, Marnie Rosenthal Chaikin. It's so nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Tracy. When we first met, we both were Pure Bar studio owners. For those of you who are listening, who may be asking what the heck is Pure Bar, it is a group fitness that combines the tiny movements of Pilates and yoga and uses a ballet bar. Plus, they sell super fun, fashionable athleisure wear, workout wear like Lululemon, Beyond Yoga, and Aloe. I owned my first studio in Roanoke, Virginia, and then opened a second one in California, which is where I met you. And you owned a couple studios in California. How many did you own? I opened the first one in California, in LA, I should say, in the LA market in 2009. And then I proceeded to open two more with a business partner, one out in the San Fernando Valley in Woodland Hills. And then that another one followed shortly thereafter, somewhat unexpectedly in Santa Monica, California. So just a little bit down the road from my Brentwood studio. Nobody's going to know this. On There might be some people listening that will totally be fans of yours from the Pure Bar days. So in the Pure Bar world, Marnie was a superstar and a legend. She owned... I think, was it the first Pure Bar studio? Well, it was the first official franchised studio. There had been a couple that had opened in the San Diego area. I think there were one or two in Michigan and one in Kentucky. But this was like the first official franchise that was following all the franchise guidelines. And I was lucky enough to work with the founder and creator of Pure Bar, Carrie Rezebeck, who's now Carrie Dorr. And I had the good fortune of having her as my mentor. In many ways, I still do. But she moved to California in the hopes of expanding the brand and really truly launching the company. And I met her in a little circle of chairs at an entrepreneurial networking group called Ladies Who Launch. And she had just moved to LA, I think the night, literally the night before, and was hoping to make some connections and meet some people. And I had an extensive background as a professional dancer and I had been teaching Pilates for a long time at that point and was looking to launch a brick and mortar situation of my own. But group fitness at that time hadn't really taken off in the way that it did starting in like 2010, 2011. So it was certainly at that time, a huge leap of faith 
to plunk down a bunch of money in a basically an abandoned shopping center in the middle of West LA. Right. I'm going to make this work. <laughs> Who cares if I have to max out my credit cards and take out a lot of credit? But it was also right after the crash in 2008. So it was probably riskier than I realized, but sometimes it's better that to not know things. Ignorance is bliss statement. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In this case, it certainly was. But I think in my case, and I'm sure certainly in yours, I really believed in the technique. I believed in the product. I believed in Carrie, certainly. And I, and I really believed in myself. I had come from a long line of entrepreneurs and I just felt like this is something that's going to take off. I just just have to, if you build it, they will come sort of field of dreams situation. Right. And they did. And that, that was the wonderful thing. So just for, the, for our audience who may or may not know about Pure Bar, again, Marnie was one of the very very first, if not, I understand that you weren't the first, but you were among the first studios. And that studio kicked off a entire chain of well over 500 studios. I don't even know what the number is today. I know you've touched on it, but what was it? What was the experience like? And you've talked about the leap of faith and what was it like being the first Pure Bar studio owner? It was scary to say the least going into it. I don't think I had any clue what I was in for. And that was probably a blessing, but we, we, I hired six teachers. Yeah. And if one of those teachers gets sick, it's not like Pilates or yoga where you can maybe throw a rock and potentially hit somebody <laughs> to come in and work for you on your behalf. So the first year was definitely a struggle as the brand took off. And fortunately at that point, I didn't have my children. So I was able to fill in and be all things to all people. But I definitely feel like I, some of it was instinct being able to succeed during that time. Some of it was just faith. And more than anything, it was just being well, willing to put in the time and being there from seven in the morning, sometimes till 10 o'clock at night was a, a big part of it. That's why I was grateful that I didn't have my children at that particular juncture. And then I think probably more than anything would be just being able to wear multiple hats at the same time, that multitasking aspect was huge. Any given moment, there's multiple things going right and going wrong and being able to navigate and maneuver through both the exhilarating aspect of it and the chaos of it all and, and keeping your cool was something I guess I, I learned along the way, but also watching my dad run his businesses over the years. I think I probably pulled in a lot more information than I realized because I, I think I... I think a lot of my instincts came from ha having family that, that sort of did those things. You said you came from a long line of entrepreneurs. So can you tell me what your dad did? Oh, so my grandfather started a chain of furniture stores in Pennsylvania. He passed away very suddenly when I was six. And my dad and one of his brothers very spontaneously took over those businesses, even though they had been working in the businesses for quite some time. I don't think that they had necessarily anticipated my grandfather's sort of untimely death. So watching him go through that process and then seeing how things waxed and waned with recessions and whatnot and seeing how he ultimately pivoted into a lot of different genres of the furniture business. When he hit a wall, he'd go another way and then he'd hit another wall and go another way. And just watching his hard work and his resilience, I think probably in a lot of ways unconsciously shaped who I became as a business owner for sure. That's cool. I think it's interesting that we do, we really do become a lot of what we see. It's almost, I, and we'll get into obviously 
the nuclear family is part of it, but as a step parent, I know that it was a really big turning point for me when I stopped trying to be a replacement mother and started to just be a mentor. And because I had these children, that's what they needed more than they needed another parent in their life. And so I think it's it's, I think it's an important lesson for parents to know whether it's a stepchild or a child of their own, that they are definitely being watched and many things come through in that experience. Mm-hmm. I think you're being really humble about your pure bar days. And I want to just say two things that I w- that were always big takeaways for me about you is one, you were a tremendous mentor to so many people. And that was so obvious by how many spinoff studios came because of their time with you. And also you brought such a wonderful sense of humor to the whole thing. Cause it can be when you're like, like you said, the only, the one that everything's falling on you had a way of just making it seem like it was all fun and games, even though I know it wasn't. <laughs> but I just, I loved that about you. Thank you. That means a lot to me, more than I can possibly put into words. But as you were speaking, I was recalling that internal video that circulated that I created for one of the Pure Bar conferences that went over really big. So I was really proud of that. That was probably like the highlight of my of my pure bar career. <laughs> it was so funny. It really is. Maybe we'll link it in the show notes so everybody can go and take a look at it because it's really funny. Because even if you've owned any business, you'll totally relate to it. <laughs> you'll totally relate to it. Okay. So we digressed. I wanted to finish with pure bar, but I were you part, you were tapped by the then private equity firm behind pure bar to join the franchisee board so that you could help them develop corporate studios. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Early on, Carrie tapped a few early adopters to be part of her advisory board. And then when she divested and we became part of that that first private equity firm, they did tap some of us that were early on or were having some success in our markets, many of which were highly competitive markets, LA, New York. Boston, San Francisco, just so that they could, I think, get like a, a, the full breadth of knowledge, some of which was to help the franchisees. And I'm sure some of it related to them wanting to open their own corporate studios and they didn't have a lot of boutique fitness experience. So enter us. Right. And that fits very nicely into your career path that you, with your master's. It's interesting because I said this to my daughter just today. I said, I, she overheard me having a conversation about this the podcast. And I said, you know, what's funny is everything you do does build on itself. I started my very first career right out of college was in production, right? And I moved away from that and I did the creative side. I went into acting and then I found my way back into politics and then back to the union stuff. It all builds and it's all very meaningful. And as you get a little age and perspective, you start to see the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Yeah, I love that. I had a coach I'd still do for a long time that would tell me nothing is for naught. And when I lament about a not so great experience, go, oh, maybe I wasted my time there. She'd go, this is not nothing. It's not. not That's good advice. It's not nothing. I'm going to write that one down. Not nothing. (laughs) Everything is is not nothing. We can turn it all into something. And even if you're not utilizing it now, it does come into play down the line. Yes. For sure. So I want to circle back a little bit to your dance background. 
I know that you had a pretty long history with dance. Yeah, it's still like an unfinished aspect of my life. I was just at my daughter's dance competition the other day and I found myself going, just becoming overly emotional because I miss it and I can't seem to find adult dance, true adult dance classes anywhere that stick long enough. So inevitably we have such busy as adults and as parents, especially people drop out and then suddenly there's no class. But yeah, I started dancing very early on and eventually started to train to become a a professional dancer in high school. I I danced competitively in middle school and then really wanted to up my game and joined a semi-professional institution. And they had a company and I got into that company and was fortunate enough to go to some very wonderful summer programs where I I could really advance my technique. And when I was applying to colleges, I decided that was something that I really wanted to do was to dance professionally, not really knowing what that meant. And I was awarded a scholarship, actually undergrad to NYU to the Tisch School of the Arts and ended up doing two semesters there before I had a, I had a little accident and piled on top of that was a situation that I was dealing with my brother. And so it became almost too much to be training that hard. And I also felt like I was really missing the typical collegiate experience not that you can really get that at NYU because you're immersed in this giant city, but I just felt like I was within these four walls at the Tisch School of the Arts with these incredibly talented people that really wanted to be there. And I didn't feel like I really wanted to be there enough to really rationalize spending the next few years there. So I ended up transferring into the Gallatin School, which is the school without walls at NYU. I think that's what they still call it. And dabbling in dance on the side, first at, at Alvin Ailey and then at the Martha Graham School. So I continued to dance through college, but not in the same way that I had planned. So life took a different turn, but dance is part of me and I do it every day, even if it's just in, in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. I need to dance more. I used to do a lot more dance party with my kids and don't get that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I do a lot of TikTok videos with my older daughter. I've seen a few of them and they're great. <laughs> they're absolutely great. So when I was launching this podcast, you were one of the first people who came to my mind that I really wanted to be a guest. I want my podcast to be a network of women who support other women. And this is something that you do so naturally. And I also want to really highlight women who have found themselves in non-traditional families, either through remarriage or divorce. Not only are you such an accomplished professional and career woman that I admire, but you have weathered some bumpy years through your divorce, a career change, and navigating single parenthood with what appears to be such grace. And now you're adding to your role as a single mom, the role of a stepmom. You currently have a fiance and he also has children from another marriage. So what was the experience of going from single divorced mom to thinking about blending a family with your fiance? I know it's not all smooth sailing, sunshine, unicorns, that, that stuff, but what like you give us a sense of how that transition has played out for you. Well, I'll, I'll start out by saying that when I did decide to leave what felt like a very unhappy, unhealthy situation for me in my marriage that I really told myself that it would be unlikely that I would ever get married again. That's really where I was. And I think think a lot of people get to that point where 
it things are so difficult that you say to yourself, even if I never meet anyone again, I'm good. And that was the key indicator for me that it was time to leave. I was willing to risk being alone forever. That was worth it to me. And also walking away with a two-year-old and a six-year-old at the time took just about every ounce of energy and effort that I had, but it was necessary and it was certainly the right thing. But I also certainly wasn't anticipating meeting anyone or I I couldn't see that far into the future. I was like, just survive, 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 survive. So I did that pretty well. And my kids, I feel like thrived. Of course, everybody hurts when you're pulling apart a marriage, whether you're doing the leaving or whether you're being left or whether it's a mutual decision. It's the death of something. And it takes a long time to heal from that. But it certainly feels worth it as I look back from five five years away from that particular juncture of my life. But so my fiance and I, we actually knew each other in high school back in Pennsylvania. We now live in California. And we just randomly ran into each other at our synagogue just quite literally randomly. I, he's not on social media. I had not seen him in 25 years. I didn't even recognize him when he called out and said, hi, Marnie. And I'm looking at him going, I don't know who you are. I totally out of context, right? 25 years later, haven't seen you, haven't talked to you. I need to interrupt and just tell our audience that you guys went to prom together. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so sweet. What a great love story, right? And that was it. We never dated, probably only exchanged a few words at prom, although neither of us can remember because it was so long ago, but he had been married and had two sons. I had been married and had two daughters. And I was certainly open to meeting somebody. I think most people are after a certain amount of time has passed. But at that point, I just wanted to know, I knew that if I was ever going to introduce anybody to my daughters, it was going to be somebody that I got to know really well and that I trusted. And I had written down a few things that I was really, truly looking for in a partner. And one of those things was how do they parent? What kind of a partner do they want to be? What kind of partner were they in their previous marriage? And what did they learn? Did they really grow and become a different kind of person, somebody that they can look in the mirror and really be proud of? We had both been through similar situations for sure. And we found that not only did we fall in love, but that there was all of these other commonalities. We had been raised with similar values and similar viewpoints and both had very strong work ethics. So there was a a lot of synchronicity, but we didn't even talk about moving in together or doing anything to really blend our families for at least two years. Because I think we just wanted to make sure that it was the right thing, which we felt early on that it was. But of course, everybody has the best intentions early on. But as things unfold, sometimes you recognize things about somebody that you don't necessarily like, or you don't necessarily want to bring around your children. And I I think we both kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it never did. We got to a place where we're like, okay, everybody's good. We've had endless conversations. We did a lot of weekend excursions with our kids to make sure that they really got to know each other. And we noticed a lot of, I don't want to say chemistry, that's probably the wrong word, but camaraderie with it with our kids and had a lot of deep conversations with each other and with them before took the plunge. We wanted to make sure everybody was comfortable and excited. And we did end up getting engaged and we moved in together this past November. And the mornings are crazy. <laughs> there, there's no, no question about that. By the time 7.30, 8 o'clock rolls around, I feel like I've lived an entire day and it's only 8 a.m. But maneuvering through all that and looking past all that, I feel like it's been a, a really 
nice, relatively seamless transition and, and the kids are happy. And um, of course, they still see their respective parents and everything. And overall, it's relatively harmonious so far. That's not to say I don't anticipate some bumps in the road are inevitable. <laughs> Of course, we have a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 7-year-old. So those teen years are here and or coming around the bend. I can see them. But I think we we have a good amount of just solid support with one another. And I absolutely adore his boys. And he, he truly cherishes my daughters. And there's just an, a really nice chemistry. So good. <laughs> so what conversations have you had about blending. You said you guys had lots of conversations. So I'd be curious if there's anything you feel comfortable sharing, of course, but I love that you, that you mindfully or intentionally had those conversations. And I'd love to hear how those went and what they look like. I think we talked a lot about disciplining and how I would be disciplining my kids and he would be disciplining his kids and that there would really be a disciplinarian coming from the other parent unless somebody was in danger. We don't want to turn the other individual into an enemy. So unless there's some kind of like really like strong vibe that that somebody's like about to harm themselves or hurt somebody else, that we leave the parenting up to the respective parent. I think we definitely felt like we wanted each child to make sure that they had their own space, even if it was a shared room or something that they had like a special spot in the house that could be theirs, that they could retreat to so that they weren't all kind of living on top of each other. And I know that isn't always sometimes a possibility, especially my older daughter was extremely concerned with having her privacy. And privacy is obviously, especially for (laughs) girls and boys who are about to go through puberty and all those things, it's a really important thing that they feel secure, that they have their own space and that they feel safe and that their space is respected. So we did sit everybody down before moving in and say, these are the house rules and everybody has to follow these rules and everybody has these chores to do. And if there's fighting, you come to us and say, hey, listen, this is what we're disagreeing on so that we can mediate so that things don't fester. Those were the main things was just, I think, really making sure that they felt, that they all felt comfortable because you never want to feel like you're throwing your kids into a situation that they don't feel like they have any say in the matter on. And I think that's the key point is I think that back in my time, parents didn't, they didn't explain anything. It was, that was adult stuff. And as a child, you just are like left with, the go where you're told and you get what you get. And I'm sure that there would be people out there that might argue this point with me, but I really do think that's a really, that intentionality and including them mm-hmm. is such an important piece. And it's not so much that you don't get to enforce rules as much as it is if they, it's always the child that's on the other side of the step, at least in my opinion. So it's the stepfather dealing with the your girls or you dealing with his boys, that is the really, the challenging part of it. And I think that the idea that you guys had a conversation in which they, maybe they didn't get to voice their opinion on it so much as they, but they were still inclusive in it. It was about all of you together and that the rules aren't different in one aspect than they are for the other side. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And to your point, like we were speaking about earlier with just how much they're absorbing from watching their parents, I think above all, 
he and I have such a mutual respect and we have such open lines of communication. So I think that they see how we interact and how we communicate and how we operate. We're operating a household that the kids follow suit and they have great communication as a result of how we're consistently interacting well and positively with each other. So that obviously also helps. They're not living in the middle of tumult. Right. We're going to take a pause in my conversation with Marnie since we're running a little low on time. Entrepreneur, business development manager, and master's candidate, Marnie Rosenthal-Chaken will return in the next episode. She'll be sharing her thoughts about co-parenting with the ex, and I'll be revealing a surprising statistic about divorce. You won't want to miss it. See you on the next Nuclear Families Evangelist, where we debunk the mythologies of biology with a lot of love, forgiveness, and humor, one conversation at a time. If you're a seeker looking for answers, we'd love to have you join our blended little family by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Want to continue the conversation after the podcast? Join our email list by visiting our website at nuclear-families.com. We'll see you next time on the Nuclear Families Evangelist. Sisu Partners LLC hosts the Nuclear Families Evangelist podcast, which contains content and discussions that have been prepared for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. No listener should assume that any discussion on this podcast serves as a recipe of or substitute for personalized advice from an investment professional or licensed medical professional, as the information provided on this podcast is not intended to be investment, legal, tax, or medical advice. The company is not an SEC-registered investment advisor and does not solicit clients or raise capital for money managers. Sisu Partners offers securities through XT Capital Partners, LLC.